0: Okay, so tonight what we want to do is we want to finish this study uh, that we have called Wounded Healer, where we uh, have been talking a little bit about laying our wounds upon the wounds of Christ, and that it's there in seeing the way that uh, he uh, handled many of the things that he went through that we might find strength and healing in our own lives as well, and um, we will begin uh, tonight with talking a little bit about uh, releasing the stones. And uh, the topic I want to talk about tonight is um, how we receive wounds and how we handle wounds in our life can either be a setback or it can be an impetus for growth. And so uh, most of the wounds that we experience in life usually come from other people. And when that happens, uh, obviously uh, we have to deal with being wronged. And so that first slide that I've shown you here uh, is talking a little bit about how conflict is inevitable. Um, And with it comes hurts and headaches that we all struggle with. But uh, I think it does come in different degrees and you see, I've listed uh, three of them there. Uh, sometimes people can say a cross word to us and we feel hurt or wounded by that. Maybe it comes out of a bad attitude. Um, maybe they're having a bad day, whatever it may be, but yet it stings. But as you go down the line there, um, the more severe it becomes. Uh, sometimes people will betray us, betray a trust, uh, those type of things that, are hard to get over, and, um, and sometimes it is such a situation that we don't uh, trust that person anymore because we have been betrayed by them. And I think probably the worst of the three is abuse, uh, where people have uh, been abused in some way, and because they have been abused, uh, the rest of their whole life in some ways has been upended. And um, th- it might take counseling, it might take therapy, it might take a lot of different things uh, to get them back on the right road. So um, we have two options when it comes to dealing when, uh, with hurt and woundedness in our life. Um, and if yeah. we use the idea of stones as kind of a metaphor, kind of, we make a choice to Either defend ourselves or to get even. I'm getting some feedback, and I don't know why. Um, uh, let me turn down the bit. Uh, I don't know. Is it feeding back as you're hearing? Yeah.
1: I think maybe people should mute themselves unless they're going to talk. That might help.
0: Yeah. Okay uh let's do that because i think um there i'm getting some feedback and I, I don't know why but um so if you i can do it from here um i'll mute it for for the time being but if you want to unmute it uh, if you have something to say and let me come back to let me sharing the screen again
1: might not be a good idea to go to all zoom
0: (laughs) okay let me go up here yeah yeah it's true okay all right there we go so uh sounds a little bit better although there's some background noise Um, okay so we were talking a little bit about how we react to uh some of the the things that we experience by way of hurts and and um, if we use the idea of a stone uh as a metaphor it's a way of getting even a lot of times and Uh, We can use it either to defend ourselves, it can be something verbally or something uh, done by way of action, Uh, or it could be um, a way of getting even with someone. So uh, you probably know where I'm going to go with this. We're going to take a look at John chapter eight in a few moments where Jesus tells us to release the stones, to drop them rather than throw them. But uh, before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about this very important interchange that jesus has with peter so i want you to go to uh, matthew chapter 18 if you have a bible go to matthew chapter 18 and when we come to matthew 18 we're going to see um a parable uh, that jesus is going to give but it's set up by an interaction that Jesus has with Peter. In verse 21, it says, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. And I don't know really what prompted this other than the previous paragraph. Uh, There is a conversation that's going on where it says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, Go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Then it has a whole protocol that if he doesn't listen, take somebody with you, so on and so forth. Well, in light of that particular uh, paragraph, uh, there's this question that Peter has. And he has in his mind a limitation on the amount of times that he should forgive. And the response of Jesus is in verse 22, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And so um, this idea here is, uh, is unlimited amount of forgiveness and, and to continue uh, to release the stones rather than throw them because that's the temptation that we might have is to throw them back at an individual in your uh, Bible, there should be, if you have a study Bible, a footnote uh, on verse 22. The NIV translates as I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And you'll note in the footnote there that the idea behind this is 70 times seven, more than just 77 times. In other words, The uh, idiom that is being used here is the idea of don't keep count, basically. Don't keep count of the amount of times um, you're going to forgive and release the hurt and and that type of thing. And that's an important notation because what we find is that this idea of 70 times 7 comes out of an ancient context. And we touched upon it several weeks back. When we were talking, uh, actually, Corey was the one that was talking about it when he was preaching uh, by a guy by the name of Lamech, and we're going to look at that real quick. But uh, here we see that Jesus responds uh, to Peter, and then then follows up with a parable, um, and it it we let's read the parable just by way of seeing how he cements this idea in the mind of his disciples verse 23 says therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants as he began the settlement a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him since he was not able to pay the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt so they are being sold into slavery the servant fell on his knees and begged him be patient with me he begged and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. In other words, forgave him. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, a much less amount. And he grabbed him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused and said he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. I think all of us have heard that phrase, debtor's prison. That's uh, the idea here. When other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? in anger his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured in other words to be you know put in debtor's prison until he should be pay back all he owed this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart so a very powerful par- parable that jesus gives to reinforce the ongoing need for us to release the stones rather than throw them and um and I think the hearers probably would have been shocked by what Jesus said, um, but they might not have been unfamiliar with the story out of which it is born. So keep your thumb here in Matthew 18 and go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 4. In Genesis, chapter 4, we're told about Cain and Abel, and you know the story where Cain, uh, out of his anger and jealousy and fear, um, rises and kills his brother Abel. And it's interesting in verse 9 of Genesis 4, the question comes from the Lord to Cain, where's your brother Abel? And he says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And the implied answer to that question is, yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper, And then the Lord says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So this is the setup that Cain has this avenging spirit in him. And he kills his brother Cain, uh, Abel rather, kills Cain. Now, if you come down, you'll find that uh, one of um, uh, Cain's relatives uh, is a a guy by the uh, name of Lamech. And in verse 19, it says, Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other Zillah. And Adah gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock his brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all who play the harp and flute, and Zillah had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Now, the description of these relatives is quite interesting, Um, you have those that are, um, they are tent dwellers, uh, they are livestock keepers, others are into the arts, and this tubal cane is into not only tools, but also what can be made from bronze and iron is weaponry as well. And uh, Lamech <laughs> then turns to uh, his wives, Ada and Zillah, and says to them, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. And now here's the, the line. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. And I think what's important in this particular um, uh, narrative here is the fact that Cain and his relatives were all into holding grudges. And um, Lamech himself is desirous of using the stone and throwing them rather than releasing them. And... uh, so this is kind of the background to um, Jesus' comment in Matthew 18. So there should be probably in the, in the ears of the hearer this, um, this idea that, oh, we've heard that story before. But Jesus flips it. He turns it on its head. And he says, you know, Lamech wanted to get even seven times seven or 77 times, uh, I am telling you to forgive. And I ask a question there in the middle of the slide. Can you imagine how revolutionary that must have sounded to a first century Jew that might have been familiar with the story of Lamech? Uh, Jesus turns it on its head and uh, tells those that are listening uh, to drop stones. So, um, the, the way of Jesus is never about vengeance, but it is about forgiveness. And then I put, and when it's possible, reconciliation as well. And you do see this happen with Jesus and Peter. And if you're familiar with um, the account in um, the courtyard where Peter denies Jesus Later in John chapter 21, Jesus not only forgives him, uh, but restores him, and they are reconciled on a beach after the resurrection. So you can look at those passages of scripture if you'd like to. But Jesus is the one that uh, is not only teaching this idea about forgiveness, he is an individual that actually does it. And Peter is an example of someone who betrayed him. And, uh, and he chose the route of forgiveness and restoration. I would venture to think that if Judas would have come to Jesus uh, and rather than killed himself, that Jesus would have forgiven him as well for his actions. So that's kind of the background from Genesis on into Matthew so i love the phrase of cs lewis um, he said um, everyone everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive <laughs> in other words that's so true the idea when we talk about it just on a on a philosophical level we we're, we're all for it but when we actually get hurt that's a different story and and I think it's more difficult to forgive uh, depending upon what level of offense uh, we have experienced. So, we all know that there are incidental uh, things that happen our, in our lives where somebody says something um, that we take offense at. It's not on purpose, it's maybe a slip of the mouth, whatever. But then you find um, people that are irresponsible and um, their actions actually cause not only hardship, but sometimes it can be very dangerous as well. People who, uh, abuse drugs and alcohol and then get behind the wheel and hurt somebody, that type of thing. And then the third level is intentional where people plan intentionally to, uh, hurt and harm someone else. So I think the levels of offense kind of determines how we respond to it, um, if it's in this incidental, we might be quick to say, oh, that's okay. Uh, if it's irresponsible, we might hold it over someone and say, you know, I'm not forgiving you until you change. When it's intentional, we might never forgive someone because uh, they 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 intentionally tried to harm us. So um those are just kind of different ways of looking at this particular topic of our wounds that are caused by other people. Does anybody have any questions or comments? So now, now I want you to turn to John chapter eight. And the rest of our time, I want to look at this uh, passage, which I think all of us are kind of familiar with, but one thing that you might not know is when you turn in your Bible, you'll see that in John chapter 8, at the beginning of the section, it says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, uh, 53 through 8, verse 11. In other words, this seems to be a later edition, um, and it, It's probable that it is an actual story from the ministry of Jesus, but uh, a later editor is probably someone that inserted this particular story, and it probably wasn't in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. doesn't make any any difference to the fact that it has a parenthesis around it. I think it is a, a powerful teaching paragraph. For our purposes tonight so let's read it and uh, then we'll come back and we'll talk about it so it says in verse 53 of chapter 7 then each went to his own home but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. So, Jesus is going to use some wisdom in the way he's going to handle this situation. And there's no doubt the woman is in the wrong. She is caught in the act of adultery. But according to the text, look at verse four, she has been dragged out. They made her stand before the group. And It's interesting that only the woman is brought out. The man is not. So this seems to me, as we see in the next verse, verse six, uh, that it was a trap that they were trying to set for Jesus to condemn him. Uh, So what you have here is really kind of a, a mob that is using the law as a way of not only stoning the woman, but by implication, stoning Jesus as well, depending upon how he's going to answer. And it's interesting to me, the way Jesus approaches this conflict. Um, Jesus steps in between the mob and the woman, and he begins to play the role of the mediator here. And he is going to get himself out of their target uh, as well as uphold her dignity as well so as he notices what they're doing in terms of setting uh, him up what he does is he begins to show that their actions actually is not condemning the woman it's condemning themselves he's kind of reversing the trap when he says, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And if you pay close attention, it's interesting to me who disperses first. Verse 9 says, they began to go away one at a time. Have you ever noticed this before? The older ones first. So the older people leave first, and I guess these Uh, younger, zealot um, type of individuals are continuing to stand there. And and finally, when they see the crowd disperse, they finally go away. But uh, this is the first time I've ever kind of noticed that, where the older individuals leave first and and it takes a while for the younger ones to leave. So thoughts on that at all? That might be. So, so probably didn't hear Esty, but she said uh, maybe the older ones knew just by the length of their life that they had a lot more sins, uh, and you know maybe that was why they left early than, than the younger ones. We have no way of knowing, but um, any any thoughts from anyone else? So I want you to notice four things. Uh, out of this story. Number one is Jesus begins to a certain extent to understand both sides of the conflict. Um, so he understands that this woman's in the wrong. Um, we see this in the very last line in verse 11, when he says, go now and leave your life of sin. So it's not like he he is, says, well, they're falsely accusing you. Uh, He realizes that it is a legitimate accusation that they are making. Um, He knew where the teachers and Pharisees are coming from. Uh, They are coming uh, with a hardcore commitment to the Torah. And in the Old Testament, someone who is caught in adultery is to be stoned Um, but the thing that I take notice of is they let the guy go free and they made the woman the scapegoat of the situation, which indicates kind of their patriarchal mindset and the way that they looked at their world. Um, what we might not understand, other than the fact that they're trying to set Jesus up here is many times the teachers of the law and the Pharisees felt this was their umwelt to use that German word we've learned a couple months back the way they saw the world is the only way that the Messiah would actually come to Israel and set them free from their captors is if Israel becomes uh pure if they're if if they can purify the culture then God would send the Messiah so if with that in their mind in the back of their mind they uh feel well here jesus is going to agree obviously with the torah and um and if he doesn't then we've got him too because he is a uh, violator of the law um jesus knows though that uh, freedom cannot come at the judgment of vulnerable people and uh, the woman has become the scapegoat in the story, and uh, so he is not going to allow her to be a prop in this patriarchal system, but he is going to turn it on them to show that they can't cast a stone without looking themselves in the mirror first. So there's an element of Jesus understanding both sides, That is, he understands probably the cultural reason that they would look at it this way, but he doesn't agree with the fact that they are using her to set him up. She is uh, basically a uh, toy that they are using uh, to accomplish their purposes. Thoughts on that? So when we're in the middle of a conflict situation, Rarely do we try to understand both sides of the issue. We only kind of see our own, you know. So maybe the wisdom of Jesus is to step back and to to try to understand why another person looks at life the way that they do. Number two, though, is Jesus is going to expose this dehumanizing behavior that we see, Um these women, I mean, this woman is simply an object to an end goal that these individuals have. And unfortunately, we see this as quite common in the scriptures. When we read the Bible, we will see a massive amount of scapegoating that goes on. Many times it's women, sometimes it's lepers, sometimes it's people that are deemed ceremonially unclean uh gentiles as a whole uh ethnic wise is often scapegoated and sometimes the poor are scapegoated as well and boy that becomes very convenient doesn't it you have a group of people and it and it still happens in in our day and age There are groups of people that are targeted uh to be the scapegoats for all the problems in society and so forth and um It might be an ethnic type of uh, group. It might be uh, our LGBTQ friends. Uh, It might be uh, the poor. Some of them are the same. Some of them are a little bit different. Uh, But we see that Jesus is going to expose that dehumanizing behavior. And he does it in, in an unusual way. So a lot of things have been said as to what jesus is writing on the ground um so he says uh to them if any of you is without sin let him be the first one to throw a stone at her but that's only after we see him bending down and starting to write on the ground with his finger um we're not told what he's writing have no idea what he's writing, but it's important enough that this individual that included this story wanted to emphasize it because he says it a second time in verse eight. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So whatever Jesus was doing somehow brought some type of mirror to this group. And uh, as he then says, the one who is without sin, be the first one to throw a stone at her. It seems what he's doing by action and by what he's doing by uh, speech comes together and they begin to disperse. Any ideas on what you think he might've wrote on the ground? Okay, so as he said, maybe he was just taking... Using this as a timeout to let uh, tempers cool down and and that type of thing. Any other ideas? There's no right or wrong here because we're not told. So, <clears throat> <laughs> so the the end the end of it though is Jesus basically is exposing their hypocrisy, um, and. I think what he's doing ultimately is inviting this group, rather than uh, throwing stones, literally, but also figuratively, to release them and to consider grace as a better storyline to consider. So um, any thoughts on this slide here? So Sarah Bessie uh, tweeted this out, she's an author. Uh, She just tweeted this out yesterday, and I thought it was quite good. People should never be the collateral damage of your theology. I think that's a pretty powerful statement. People should never be the collateral damage of your theology. We all try to, I guess, categorize and systematize the teachings of the Bible. But when we do so, and it becomes a stone that we throw at other people, at that point, we have missed the mark altogether. And I think that's what this story is saying. um, They are actually as guilty as this woman caught in adultery. In fact, we might say they are worse because they actually want to commit a violent act against this woman. Um, And so, um, you know, I just thought I'd put this up. People should never be the collateral damage of your theology. Hold your theology loosely uh, because it'll come back and bite you at times, just like it did this group that we see here uh, in John chapter eight. Any thoughts there?
1: The Bible's been used, Larry, the Bible's been used for years to of beat certain groups over the head Mm -hmm. I mean they used to think left-handed people were evil for years um you know they tried to keep black people under the thumb using the bible you know now it's the lgbtq community and it's been women Mm. you know so that's and nothing new
0: (laughs) yeah right right And occasionally these things come to the surface and um, and we make some advances. Um, So we were telling Mark uh, before we started online that Esty and I just finished um, a uh, a Amazon original uh, series called the Underground Railroad. So if you have Amazon Prime,
1: Mm -hmm. uh, you
0: might want to check that out. It's a it's quite good. It's 10. uh, It's 10 episodes. Uh, But some of the verbiage that's used throughout this series kind of reinforces what you're saying, Shelley, that uh, the Bible was being used and misused and abused constantly during the days of slavery uh, to keep the slaves in check. And uh, and of course, the Underground Railroad was the way that they some of them, not all of them, uh, were able to escape this unjust system that had been set up and supported by misinterpretations of the Bible and the refusal to let the Bible continue to develop beyond the first century because we see a movement in the right direction, but the work isn't finished. And so when we say that the Bible is closed at the end of the first century, sometimes what we do is we try to handcuff God because he's taking it somewhere, it's progressing somewhere, but we've cut it off. And, uh, and, and slavery is, is one of those type of issues where I think most people nowadays, I would hope anyways, would recognize that slavery is wrong, even though the Bible says slaves obey your masters. But it's, it's something that was in process and progressing. And you move beyond the first century and you move on into the 21st century, we see that um, the civil rights movement was inevitable because we began to grow and change culturally. And we're not as far as we need to be in it. But then again, we are farther along than we were during the days of the Civil War. But um, so, yeah, you're right on the money there, uh, Shelley. The Bible is often used as a weapon.
1: Back, back in Bible times, though, the slaves looked just like the people who were enslaving them.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: And, and that was taken out of context.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Any other thoughts on that? So number three is jesus tells tells us to discern a third option um jesus points to something that i don't think they were anticipating i don't think these individuals were expecting jesus to turn it back on them and say you who are without sin you you be the first one to throw the stone I think probably what they expected Jesus to do was to engage in an argument with them. And uh in in engaging in an argument with them, then they could condemn him uh as a false teacher and therefore a false messiah. Um but he didn't do that. He discerned through wisdom a way of de-escalating the situation and um and as an outcome of the story, um, violence was disarmed and, um, and people walked away. I don't know if we could follow that story up. It'd be interesting to see if any of those individuals who had stones in their hands uh, actually changed their mind and changed their heart. We're not told that in the text, but um, I would hope to think that this interaction with Jesus shone a light on them. And because of that, they they had a change of mind and a change of heart. Um, That doesn't come easy though, does it? So, okay. And finally, choose love. Um, So when it comes to the conflicts uh, that brings wounds to us, sometimes we, we are not trying to, to one-up someone else in this ongoing escalation of conflict. Rather, uh, choosing love rather than winning is more important. And um, it's interesting that Jesus didn't defend himself at all. He uh, just ba- basically used wisdom to bring about love as as a legitimate option here and um, so jesus was up to the task of debating with the pharisees on occasion we see different times when he does that but not on this occasion he chose to protect this woman and um, he used love as the dominant um motivation and he turned the mirror right back on them and and they dropped the stones. Thoughts on that? So there's all kinds of literature. Uh, if you're interested in this topic, um, there's a book that was put out by a guy by the name of Brian Stevenson called Just Mercy. And there was, a, there was a movie that was made of this as well. Uh, but this particular quote comes out of this book. We can embrace our humanness, which means embracing our broken natures and the compassion that remains our best hope for healing, or we can deny our brokenness, deny compassion, and as a result, deny our own humanity. So um, in this um, book, he 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 is an individual uh, that stands up for the woman caught in adultery in his world, and um, and I just you know if you have a, if you're looking for something to read, this is a good book to uh, to look to. So the road to forgiveness um, is a choice number one, and it's a path as well. So often we need to forgive over and over again uh, because sometimes. Just saying at one time is, you know, doesn't do, doesn't do its full work. Uh, so to forgive is to release the impulse to avenge and to desire that the offending image bearer that we have a stone that we'd like to throw at, um, that uh, we find a new path that doesn't dehumanize either ourself or other people in the process. So there is a theologian by the name of um, Miroslav Wolf uh, in his book called Exclusion and Embrace, a Theological Explanation of Identity, Otherness, and Reconciliation. He says on, how do you like that for a title? <laughs> uh, page 123, every act of forgiveness enthrones justice. Forgiveness draws attention to justice's violation precisely by offering to forego its claims. So he's basically saying that when we demand justice, um, many times we never, ever, ever achieve it. But when we pursue forgiveness, it actually enthrones justice. And many times justice is achieved uh, through the process of forgiveness. The way of Jesus is to enthrone justice, but as a means of peacemaking, and forgiveness um, and stopping the cycle of vengeance that often occurs between people, between nations, uh, between ethnic groups, that type of thing. Um, Thoughts on this at all? Our greatest challenge is when we have a stone in our hand and we feel justified to throw it that to drop it is really an act of faith, and it takes a lot of self-control, uh, because I think naturally we would love to get even with those who have hurt us, um, but if we if we recognize, and this is kind of the idea I've been trying to get at in this Wednesday study, when we look at the wounds of Christ, so Jesus... In this John chapter 8 paragraph, Jesus is the one that's being uh, stoned, or at least there are those that want to stone him on several occasions, but he ultimately then is um, murdered on a cross, and he is um, he's on the cross, and he's the scapegoat for all the problems uh, that is happening in the first century world. And Jesus looks down from the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And so the ultimate wound of Christ, is death, violent, vicious, um, I mean, torturous death. Um, he chooses to forgive. And by his wounds, we are healed. Because he went through it and he chose to forgive and it becomes the basis of grace and uh, newness and um, second chances and all those type of things. And, um, and when we allow his wounds to touch our wounds, um, we recognize that he's not standing aloof from our pain. He actually entered into it fully with us, and because he has done that, um, he is able to heal us, and I don't think that happens overnight. I think it takes time, and sometimes it needs help in the way of counseling and other things, Um, but it's, um, let me tell you a little story. So I met with a lady that I'm doing a funeral uh, uh, on Friday. She lost her husband, he had um, developed some dementia, and um, he was in a home, not very long, but uh, he seemed to be doing okay, and all of a sudden, he passed away in the middle of the night, and she wasn't there, and uh, she was breaking down when I was uh, talking with her about the service, and <laughs> she says, I just can't forgive myself that I wasn't there and that he died alone. And um, she, she said, I don't know what to do. And and I just basically told her, I said, you know, he didn't die alone. The Lord was there with him. And it just kind of, it, 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 I think it took a little bit of weight off her shoulders. And I think it's one one of the things that, Um, we often have to keep reminding ourselves of whatever we're beating, beating ourselves up for that we're, we're sinners, we make mistakes, but the Lord chooses to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. (laughs) You know, they don't know what they're doing. And, uh, and so here's this man of sorrows um, that chooses to touch our wounds by his wounds. And I think that's, ultimately how we heal up and then and then he allows us to, to turn around and hopefully bring some healing to other people too so i have one more slide i'm going to show you any thoughts before we do that any questions comments so here's a quote from francis of assisi and you've heard this a hundred times. I know you have, but um, I think it's appropriate as we uh, close okay. off our uh, study of the wounded healer. He prays, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. And where there's injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. And where there's sadness, joy. It about covers it all, doesn't it? It really does. So in this spirit of prayer, why don't we close our Bible sure. study tonight? Um, sure. if, if you have, uh, if you can see this on the screen, let's say this in unison together as, as our final thought for tonight. Okay, let's read this together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope where there is darkness, light, and where there is sadness, joy. Amen. So we'll start a new study next week. And um, we're going to take a look at some of the uh, things in the book of Genesis that I couldn't get to on Sunday morning. We were talking a little bit before um, about doing it just over the summer by Zoom. Is everybody okay with that?
1: Yeah. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Here, okay.
0: Uh, no, I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to touch upon some things in Genesis simply because it's fresh in our mind. So, uh, you know, and uh, so we'll do it uh, just by Zoom uh, for this study, and then in the fall, hopefully, we can do a new study, and we'll come back in person. And it'd be nice if we could get some additional people to come out. So, hope you have a great night, everyone.
1: all right <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Nice. Bye bye. Bye. Is that the cross?